0: Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of breakfasters for the week ending July thirty. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia.
1: Triple R. Virginia Gay is an award-winning screen and stage actor, writer, playwright and now creator of Cyrano, freely adapted from Edmund Rostant's literary classic and to tell us about it, the performer and uncanny Kate Blanchett impressionist joins us now. <laughs> Virginia, welcome back to Breakfasters.
2: Oh, hi. Good morning. Oh,
0: <laughs> hi, hi, hi. Yeah. That just
2: it's just it I'm recording on my professional v- voiceover mic this morning. <laughs> and just every time I put it on, I just assume that people want the cheaper, more affordable, like the more accessible cake match. <laughs> Here I am. Hello. Good morning. What do you need me to sell? My show? I'll do it. <laughs>
1: good. Well, let's start with Cyrano.
2: What, what have you done with it? Oh, uh, okay, so what have I done with it? So it's a show that is, like, very dear to a lot of people's hearts, probably usually through the film Roxanne and maybe The Truth About Cats and Dogs, which are great rom-com adaptations of it in the 80s and 90s, respectively. Um, and I really love it. It's about uh, a person who has decided they're unworthy of love because of something about their body, and I was like, that seems a very familiar feeling to me for my teens and my 20s. Um But what happens when you have a female Cyrano is that uh, Cyrano is a tragedy uh, and I don't really want to be part of telling stories anymore that uh, endorse killing your gays and saying queer love is impossible. So uh, I've stopped it being a tragedy and it's about a bunch of people, six actors, who are trying to remember how to put on a production of Cyrano and at all points asking each other, why we're putting on this production, how we can put on a production that contains gaslighting and catfishing and still has a happy ending and how <laughs> one woman can manipulate another and still have it be a rom-com and for that conversation to go on in an extremely funny, joyful, ridiculous, loving way that is filled with hope, which is exactly what Melbourne needs Yes, right now.
1: precisely. Uh, what, when did you put all of this together?
2: Was it during Melbourne's
1: all of our lockdowns? Were you overseas? Mm -hmm. What was the situation?
2: I was overseas. I was stuck in LA, but I was taking all of Melbourne's um, precautions because I have family in Australia and I made my parents, my boomer parents, swear. I was like, if you take this seriously, (laughs) I will take this seriously because if I get stuck here and you get sick (laughs) and I can't come home, I will never. Never forgive you. So we all lived under the, um, we lived basically under Melbourne's rules. I was like, these are the tiny reasons you can leave the house. You cannot go. Why do not travel anywhere? Um, and, uh, and I did the same in LA. So I was in LA completely by myself. Like LA is a pretty uh, lonely town anyway. Um, but I was there even more isolated than usual, lots, in fact, almost all of my friends had run back to Australia at the beginning of the uh, apocalypse. And um, I was there looking after a friend's dog who needed all of her shots to get back to Australia. And so that dog was the only living thing that I touched for weeks on end. And it was sometimes the only living thing that I saw for Mm. days on end. Mm. So it was truly isolating Truly, truly isolating, but also excited to announce that that dog and I are married now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she really got me through some dark times. So Gidget and I uh, get excited. There'll be a save-the-date card <laughs> we'll in the mailbox soon. Can
1: I ask, if you were so diligent, how is it that you contracted COVID?
2: Mate, because it was America and it was everywhere. Yeah. Because the case numbers on a daily basis were like on the other side of 100,000 wow. per day, new Jeez. cases. It was inescapable. And I was there for nearly seven months. And in that seven months, I saw, let's say, maybe six people over seven months. And one of those people was pre-symptomatic by one day. Whoa. And even though we met outside and we were wearing masks, oh, wow. Pre-symptomatic by one day was enough. It is a very contagious disease and it is also a rotten disease and I do not recommend it. Yeah. I I just want to highly endorse not getting this disease as much <laughs> yeah. as possible.
1: Yeah.
2: Do everything you can to not get it. Abide by lockdowns, even though they're absolutely awful, but they are the main thing that we have, keeping us from getting this disease and letting it run rampant in the community at the moment. And then, when we can, let's all get vaccinated, please. Uh, And in the meantime, go to the (laughs) theatre. When the case numbers are low and when everything... I mean, what's beautiful about the theatre and how um, really diligent the arts community has been is that there has been, as far as we know, absolutely no transmission in any theatrical situation ever so Mm. we you know we mandate masks indoors very very careful contract tracing people are really people who are coming to see live theater love live theater and want it to flourish and so are doing everything in their power to keep themselves and the arts safe and working so it's actually very beautiful exactly i saw an
1: image of you rehearsing are you playing a banjo Mm, a banjolelejolele,
2: <laughs> which is which is my favorite word in the entire world. <laughs> um, it's It's a banjo drum, so it's that pigskin drum and with that tinnier, like more resonant sound, um, but it's got a ukulele tuning because a banjo's actually got six strings, and it's bloody hard. Mm. Um, but a ukulele having only four strings and being played by hipsters, the world all over <laughs> is, is possible for me to learn a little better. Okay, and you play it during the show. In fact, I actually learnt it for Calamity Jane and we've been mucking around with using it in the show, but actually now somebody else plays it in the show. Oh. It, that is the Calamity Jane Banjalele, which is uh, my voice warm-up now. The Calamity Jane Banjalele. The, <laughs> the Calamity Jane Banjalele. The Calamity <laughs> Jane um, um, I love that you've been able to wedge it into another show, though, as well. I know. I travel with it. I try and put it in everything. <laughs> The only other the only other instrument that I play is the trombone and that's a lot harder to get into a show let me assure you of yeah, that not a subtle and when, when it's, you, not a, no. it's not it's not an accompanying instrument it's not a, let me just offer you a, a support from a trombone
1: no, 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 no. uh and what
2: about uh, when you're all on stage cuz you open shortly Mm-hmm. We open August the fifth. We've got some previews from July thirty first. What about when we're all on stage?
1: Well, when when was oh, the, the last question. time
2: that you saw each other? Oh yeah. So we've been. We were like all of Victoria. We be we will have been in lockdown for twelve days. So we heard on Thursday mid afternoon that there was a possibility that we might go into lockdown that night. And so we all did a stumble-through run of the show of where we'd gotten to. We filmed it. uh, And then at the end of that run, half of the company was standing outside the door in full masks going, get your stuff, go home, don't come back. Oh, my God. Um, And filming it has meant that our incredible creative team has been able to continue to plot the lights and plot sound cues And work with our director, our wonderful director, Sarah Goods, to try and continue to make this show. And then every day we meet on Zoom and we run the entire show. And it's a very quick, funny, high-paced comedy with lots of like uh, ping, 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 pings with words. So actually line running is beautiful. Line running over Zoom is a... (laughs) <laughs> well, nightmare. But that's, you know, we all know exactly how wonderful and exactly how awful Zoom is by now, having had 18 months of it. I'm so grateful for it. But if I never see another Zoom meet up, I'll be thrilled. How
1: emotional is this going to be for you to, you know, mm. be, this, be the show that is at the end of a lockdown, hopefully our last, and it's, you've spent so much time on it and it's yours. Is this massive?
2: Yeah, it is massive and it's also very particularly massive because I wrote this show for Melbourne about isolation, about coming out of isolation, about how much courage it takes to reach out and touch somebody again after you've isolated yourself for so long because this is what Cyrano does. Cyrano isolates themselves to protect the thing that they love from what they feel will hurt them, which is, you know, in Cyrano's case it's misguided, the, the idea that, that her love could be shameful to Roxanne. And so she says, I'll just keep myself separate and I won't bring this to you. But of course, this is the feeling that we've all been going through for the last 18 months. I will keep myself se- separate to protect you, this thing that I love, so that you don't get sick. You I I will I will suffer so that you don't have to suffer. Um, so it's a show to celebrate how wonderful it is coming out of that and how bold and how frightening. And how joyful that is! So I made it for specifically this situation and this and this feeling. I didn't think it would be quite this fresh, yeah. Mm. Um, but hopefully, it will it will ring a bell in Melbourne it... and will feel like a celebration.
0: Well, I guess that's what I was going to ask. What does it feel like to be on stage? I mean, especially coming after a month of Zoom rehearsals. Do we, mm. What do you anticipate it's going to feel like being on stage and being able to touch people and see their
2: mouths? <laughs> yeah it will feel like like a really heightened version of the way that it always does i think so it always feels like magic like it feels like magic because you're, you're 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 telling a thing that everybody knows is a fiction but it feels real and that's that's the like base level of magic that theater has like even the audience comes in going i know i know you're actors i've seen you on the telly i've seen you do other things but wow. God, when you when suddenly I saw your heartbreak, that felt real and I felt that in myself. So it'll feel like that but more so with the dial turned up, I think, because everybody's emotions are so raw. Everybody's so longing for connection at the moment. Everybody so needs connection. And this weird beautiful thing that art does, not to put too highfalutin a point on it, which is that it helps you metabolize pain. Like it helps you. It says like this thing, this thing that you felt that we've all felt, watch us metabolize it and watch us turn it into something beautiful for you and hand it back to you and go, here, here's something sparkling out of that terrible time. Mm. Now have a great night. Well, if that doesn't sell tickets, <laughs> like Chapman, right? it. <laughs> yes, if it doesn't sell tickets, I'll send Kate to your door.
1: <laughs> uh, Cyrano by Virginia Gay, after Edmund Rostand. Have you thought about what Edmund
2: would have made of what you've done? Oh, I think. I mean, I hope he would have loved it because he was a, a high romantic guy, and he also loved words. And this show loves words, I love wordplay, the cast loves wordplay and this, I think the evolution of this character and the fact that, you know, he wrote it as a tragic hero, he wrote it as a, as a sort of emblem of France who was losing wars all over the place and, and, and has a kind of tragic soul. I think the idea of evolving this hero into somebody who's a, like a queer young woman who has like a hopeful soul and a happy ending... I think, would be really beautiful for him. It's Cyrano, uh July 31 to 4th of
1: September. Go to mtc.com.au for all the details. Virginia Gay, such a pleasure to talk to you this morning.
2: Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. Melbourne's own
3: Triple R.
4: I was walk- walking around the river, as I do uh, on Saturday. I had the day off yesterday, though. I literally didn't leave the apartment. and It was wonderful. I was nice and cosy oh, and warm a dream. And finished a book and watched the Olympics. And, um, anyway, but on Saturday when I was walking around, I mean, the sun was out, but it was still freezing. But I noticed a couple of uh, people walking past with shorts. Like, it's winter. It was freezing. Had like a jacket, a beanie, like a jumper and a jacket. So we're obviously cold. But I don't know, got excited about the sun and decided to wear shorts. I'm not sure if you've seen I've seen a lot of tradies do this as well.
1: Like Digga, digger. Always oh. wear shorts. Any any weather. Yeah. I mean I had a high school teacher that did it. And it's like, is it are you just trying to PE teacher? No. Like, really? You're a
0: coordinator. Oh. Put on some pants. Oh, I'm sorry if you're a coordinator, you're at pant level. <laughs>
1: Uh, the only one of the main problems with wearing shorts is you got to worry because you don't have to worry about socks usually. Oh yeah, no one has seen them. But yeah. if you, you actually have to coordinate the socks with the shoes and the shorts, it's a whole nother level for mm. people who don't care about their aesthetic.
4: I, you know, when I was when I was younger, I used to catch the bus to school, and I would like w- when it was going to be a warm day. It it would always be frosty in the morning, and I was living in Blackwood, and so it would be freezing in the morning and there would be frost but when you saw frost you knew it was going to be a nice day but freezing in the morning um but I was determined because I played I just played sport every single day so um come lunchtime I'd be too hot in pants so in the mor- in the morning sorry at 7 seven thirty in the morning I would put shorts on and I would get on the bus and my friend who I sat next to every day she would just be like you cannot tell me that you're not cold you must be freezing right now, and I would always say, "No, I'm fresh." Like I was freezing, I was absolutely <laughs> freezing, but I just said fresh to convince I'm myself fresh. that I would get through the morning. The afternoon was always really sunny, so it, and I, I don't know. You don't bring a change of clothes? Oh, well, sometimes you
1: do. I couldn't be bothered. So, um, what a disposal store that had uh, zips around the knees? <sighs> Oh, yeah. Would you have done that? How oh, handy.
4: Absolutely not. Yeah. Oh, my God, how embarrassing. Social suicide. <laughs> what? I wouldn't have had that friend on the bus anymore, I'll tell you that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and also, it's just something else to lose.
0: True. True.
1: What are you like, st- I saw Bobby in the morning and she was wearing pants. Now she's wearing shorts. <laughs> and Bobby pulls out the knee to foot sleeves of her <laughs> pants. What are you going
0: to stuff them in the cargo pocket?
5: <laughs> yeah, you would.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so bad. But why do shorts have a bad rap? Like, do you reckon no one can walk into a restaurant, a cafe, a club, a room without being judged for wearing shorts? Skirts are fine. Pants are fine. Three-quarter pants, capri pants, leggings. Mm. But you can't – what is – like, I just don't get why shorts have a bad rap. Maybe at a certain length, like a short short, Mm. you can walk into a club in a short short as a woman perhaps. But, like, I just find it weird that shorts – there's something has remained so, uh, like they, they're just not a pant for anything. Yeah. They're just a pant for sport, but otherwise they get a bad rap.
4: Otherwise you, like it's if you were like going on a date
0: and someone turned up in shorts, you'd go, I'm out of here.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Well, I don't know the rules anymore. I mean, is it below the
1: knees or on the knees or above think, the knee?
4: Oh, I mean, I would always wear shorts just, just slightly above the knee kind of a thing. Um, I wouldn't wear short shorts. If I was playing sports or anything like that. Actually, even if I wasn't playing sports, mm. I wouldn't be wearing short shorts. You know, I played cricket, women's cricket, um, in the mid 90s. God, that's all I'm. And you know what we had to wear when we were playing cricket? What? Clots. Get out. We had to wear colottes. Like long clots. Like, oh, to God. the ground. N- <laughs> No, to, oh. to, like to your, you could have them, ar- there, be around the knees, but uh, the uniform, so it was white collots, white as well, um, oh and God. long socks. So I would have a tan line of my knees, just like between my long socks where it ended and the end of my collots
0: were. I didn't even know collots could end at the knee. Yeah. It's um, like baggy shorts, like floppy shorts. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, I, I think we had to wear them for about...
4: Maybe three or four years until eventually they allowed the women to wear pants because oh they were, my. of course, much more comfortable to Gosh. play sport in. But for my first four years, four or five years, we had to wear clots and long socks oh to play cricket, as though we were. How could you yeah, ever back in the seventies be I mean. sexy? And I mean, not oh, that—that's well, that we that what you're thinking <laughs> when you're playing sport. But, but geez, just, just comfortable as well. Like once we transferred to the <laughs> <laughs> just to comfortable the p- yeah. Oh Sorry, <laughs> did
1: you tuck in the collots? Because I'm looking to at the a picture socks. of Louis the 16th and he, yeah, he tucked his collots into his socks.
4: Oh, no, no, no. So there was a gap. So your knees were shown. So you'd literally have to put sunscreen on your knees. Um, and, you know, God, this is so old school. I, I actually had, you had a long socks and then you had a stirrup to put the long oh socks God, in the so they didn't stirrup. go down. What the hell? This uh, I don't know. This is just. Uh, so, a stirrup is made of. It's an elastic. An elastic. Just to, so that you don't have to keep pulling up your socks all the time. You just have them so that your
1: socks were up. Did I, it make you feel <laughs> like I'm ready to play cricket? Like, or um, like, did you associate it with cricket, or did you feel stupid every time you wore it, or? I think.
4: First, I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I kind of got used to it. I think it wasn't until like I think in high school a couple of people saw photos of me on a – I was on a tournament and I was showing them photos and they're like, what?
1: What, what on are
4: you earth are these? And like when we played state, we'd have blue culottes, uh with
0: flowers on the top and stuff like. There's some daggy, daggy uniforms. Who? It's like a man. We're sitting there going, "What do ladies wear? Oh,
4: completely. They wear
0: skirts. How do we make a skirt a pants? <laughs> Where's yeah. that? Yeah. Wow. Although collots were cool in the nineties, like long collots were cool.
4: Right. Right. You can't not remember that. Oh well, they certainly weren't on the quicker field. No. Yeah, and even, like, j- just diving. Like, now that women wear pants, the amount of grazers that we would get on our legs from diving in culottes, and because the collots would just ride up, so you'd get, yeah, scratches and bruises kind of in that area from diving.
0: So it was just, yeah. Why did w- you wear a baseball, Daniel?
1: Oh, it was so uncomfortable. I can't even describe the what fabric. A ba- it was, I mean, the tight. They were tight.
0: So it was so tight. Oh. They were super figure-hugging, oh. like... Like, so cruel to young, right? to, like young teenagers in that awkward time mm. when yeah. everything's
1: wrong. Oh, and uh, you know you're wearing a box, and so oh, that's God. it's like this bulging, you know, <laughs> Matt Shervington situation. <laughs> and then, oh. and then a vest, but but then like a skivvy underneath the vest. Yeah, skivvies. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, so cruel. It, yeah, I think, but and I never, but. It, once you're in it, it's like okay, this is baseball, but you you, you don't train in that. No, so it's it feels, too uncomfortable. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so suddenly you're in a match condition, and it's like I'm freezing. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm crinkly. I move. I can hear myself moving because <laughs> I'm wearing so many clothes. Uh, do you still have you? Oh, also, how'd you shine the ball? I mean, <gasps> on on the side of your collot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
3: Independent Melbourne, Melbourne Radio 3 R.
1: Nick Boshier is co-creator of Dom and Adrian on Stan Bondi Hipsters Soulmates and Seven Days Later on ABC TV and co-founder of Ludo Studio behind the iconic Bluey. His latest project is a new six-part sketch comedy series The Moth Effect set for release on Amazon Prime. And to tell us about it, the creator, comedian and actor joins us now. Nick, welcome to Breakfasters. Howdy. It's really lovely to chat to you all. You're just so bright and sunny. It's deeply impressive. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, Did you, with The Moth Effect, did you have a manifesto, a guiding principle? Uh, What was the, uh, what set you off on this particular sketch comedy project? Straight
3: out of the gates.
6: (laughs) Yeah, I... For, for Jazz and myself, I guess the manifesto was like there's probably enough phenomenal political satirists out there doing way better than either one of us could do, and there's enough people dunking on politicians or dunking on folks. So we, we kind of had this manifesto that we've repeated to each other, which is kind of be anti-coal mining but not anti-coal miners. Yeah, right. And that helps us stay at the systems, not the folks who are just trying to You know, does that make sense? Yeah. But it's more or less what's helped us through the, from the beginning. And what
1: about, uh, I was just thinking about Jeff Bezos. Would you, let's say if that was in the air, would you, would you, would your comedy sensibilities be neutered? Would you go, no, let's, let's not make fun of the boss.
6: Uh, Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's, it's not that we would kowtow or we've kind of uh, pulled any punches, but. Uh, we have didn't pitch any kind of Jeff Bezos-y yeah. ideas, and I'm sure I'm sure we would have to consider that. That being said, though, Amazon have really encouraged us to kind of go for the jugular, so to speak, because they haven't muted us in any way, shape, or form in terms of the ideas that we that have managed to get through. So we didn't try it. I'm sure there'd be consideration, yeah, or, yeah. If I'm honest, <laughs> yeah. But we've been pretty lucky that they've just kind of let us. Uh, yeah, express ourselves, so to speak.
1: The trailer and the first couple of episodes are refreshingly dark. Yeah. yeah. So
0: dark. <laughs> oh, shit. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but very, very funny. I feel like it uh, hits the mark. Somehow you've hit the mark for exactly how everyone's brains are at this very uh, particular moment, especially in Australia.
6: Oh, that's such a lovely thing to say. I That may, that may have been accidental because <laughs> maybe we're just sharing this Maybe we're just sharing this same fever dream at the moment and um, we've managed to just tap into a little bit of that collective consciousness. But yeah, it's pretty, it is pretty dark, isn't it? I watched it last night um, with my girlfriend for the first time and she, she kind of laughed but she also did this thing a lot. <laughs> How did you get that on? <laughs> so, yeah, there's a bit of that. So who knows uh, what's going to happen once it is released. Uh, Kate
4: Box, she is one of my favourite actors. She's terrifying in Wentworth and she's just bloody hilarious in this. How did you get such big names on the show?
6: Uh, to be honest, probably the goodwill of our production company, Bunya. And, you know, I'd, I'd known and fawned over Kate and her artistic flipping genius yeah, for, yeah. for years now because she is – like the next level, when we saw her perform, we were like, oh, okay, I see, I see, that's what that next level is. Because, yeah, yeah, she's a dramatic actor, but when she did the things for our sketch, she was kind of like David Brent. She was, like, brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, she was. And it blew us away from the day we filmed to the edit studio. It was just mind-boggling. So, yeah, probably the goodwill of Bunya. And Kate had done a tiny little thing that I'd done a while ago in – um. For soulmates, so she knew of us, but yeah, I don't take any responsibility for.
0: I don't want to um, give too much away, but how do you convince Brian Brown to be QAnon? Q- <laughs> <laughs> that.
6: that is a question I have just received. <laughs> um,. Well, again, if I'm honest, probably the goodwill of (laughs) other people that are not me. So, yeah, probably Bunya and uh, Brian's uh, agent, Anne Churchill Brown, seems to just be supportive of this stuff. And I think, yeah, we're just lucky. I don't quite know. And maybe when they got the script, they were like, okay, this isn't isn't the worst thing I've read before. But he did come in with a few considerations. (laughs) Did he? Like what? Well, he was – they're very – Pre- precise artistic people and Brian's got so much experience so he came in with this of course like script literacy so he's like yes yeah, so hold on so this guy wants to do blah and he wants to get to blah because of blah and we would really have to kind of not talk through it with him as though he needed explaining he just needed clarity on the concept which helped us kind of realign the, the sketch a little bit so that's kind of what I mean by that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, he just needed the refining of the concept, which it helped, yeah.
1: When you're tossing around ideas, how bleak does the writer's room get?
6: Oh, <laughs> Jazz and I, <laughs> it, it gets dark. Good <laughs> dark. It's like if we can't, I, I think it helps to kind of talk about all the dark stuff that's going on because it's not all dark and it's not all light and it's somewhere in between. So we're happy to go super dark and happy to go super light just depending. But jazz is a phenomenally quite a cerebral academic bloke. Whereas I'm like this jittery caffeine fueled, you know, nervous bastard. He's, he's so calm and so thoughtful. So I say all the words and then he sits back and just says, about 3% of the words far more effectively, more efficiently, that articulate the concept that I'm trying to get at. And so that kind of leads us to ideas sometimes. Right. What a he yeah. I
4: was going to say, yeah, right,
6: he's a pretty brilliant fellow, yeah.
0: I um, I don't know how much we were allowed to give away from what, I've, from what I've watched. Am I allowed to talk about one of the characters? Yeah, totally. Why not? Okay, yeah. so I got really messed up by, oh, now I've forgotten his exact name, Night. the Time Knight. <laughs> time Knight. Time oh, Knight. No. Okay. Can you? <laughs> Can you talk to me about the Time Knight and where did this character come from? Because it's kind of really, it it effed me up a little bit, to, me be, to be totally honest, but um, in a, in
6: a really great way. Mm. Oh, that's good. Okay. Well, it depends. The more questions you ask of Time Knight, the more questions there are. So it's that <laughs> uh, you're having a nightmare and you kill that spider and that spider turns into seven spiders. <laughs> <laughs> that's Time Knight as a sketch. <laughs> <laughs> He is a time traveling, uh, you know, let's call him the space cop, uh, time traveling cop, who um, has he travels the timeline to basically fix things that have been bad throughout history. So his uh, offside of Chrono Three One One gives him the notification that a Hitler has been born. So Time Knight travels back in time. I'm too, I shouldn't give this this much detail away. Anyway. Whilst he is travelling, he has a tryst. The tryst is, turns out to be his own mother, and he just realises in that moment that he's essentially impregnated his own mother with himself. <laughs> so and so he's his own dad, but also his own versions of himself across infinity. And unless he sleeps with his mum, <laughs> World War II happens. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's just, I just don't understand where it came from. It's so good. Yeah, I get that. That's a beautiful brainchild of jazz. To be honest. And, yeah, and just, you know, it's a, it's, there's a robot in it, and the robot's got a beard. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, um, am I crazy? Were you an artist manager? I was a musician manager, yes. In fact,. I, I kind of semi wanted to talk about it because I used to fawn over Triple R and used to try and get Lior. The a beautiful manager, who, oh, sorry, beautiful artist that I used to manage back in the early thousands or mid well, two thousand and four onwards. And, um, yeah, I was always such a a fan of Triple R, and we always thought it would be super cool if we got onto Triple R. So there you go. Wow. Wow. you made it. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Uh,
1: Did you you learn anything being on that side of the fence versus exploding with, you know, Bundai hipsters and all the rest of it since?
6: Yeah, I think so, so much because – um, what I discovered being in on the management side of things that it's kind of demystified the work that goes into, I don't know, being an artist. And I'd, I'd see folks like John Butler be this phenomenal artist, but also amazing, uh, had this amazing administrative acumen. And I was like, oh, okay, I see. It's like artists aren't just these lofty dingelings that strum a guitar and then just someone makes it work for them. So probably that's the biggest thing that I learned on the other side, which was, oh, you just you've got to work. If I guess if you're an artist, if you're Mm. setting, you know, so that that was the biggest thing that I learned. You've just got to kind of keep working and probably not rely on too many other ideas of what can make you successful, which like agents or, you know, you name it, labels and this that and the other. You can move yourself. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: and just uh, I suppose as we run into the news, the production values are really seriously full on. Like, they're terrific. Mm. And what, what's it like applying that amount of money to such stupidity?
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, okay, so it weirdly could be classified as a kind of a medium to small budget. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't big budget, but what we just had is just chanced on these, like, phenomenal D.O.P.'s and the VFX chap who's a Melbourne guy called Michael Shanks who's just this generous genius and he kind of lent us his brain and we just happened upon this like phenomenal lighting gang and I don't know it it was a lot of um, production value but of smallish budget but what I would say is I love the fact that I would have to talk about um incest paradoxes <laughs> at such details with really kind of with people on several continents i was like you know i love that i loved it a lot
1: <laughs> well it's all come to life as part of the moth effect it's a six-part sketch comedy series for release on amazon prime video from friday july 30 if they staggered week on week do they all come out at once what's the deal
6: yeah, they're released weekly from um, July thirtieth. So you know, st- stay with it. Stay with it. <laughs> Fry your brain, probably. You know, don't watch it too late at night. I don't know if you'd be able to get straight to sleep. But <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Need yeah. six days to
1: recover. And yeah. uh, co-created with Jazz Tremlo, uh, Nick Bocher. Uh, pleasure to chat with you. Thanks very much. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Triple. Ah. Oh. Now,
4: I know it's not Friday, so uh, it's not time for a quiz, but I am going to start with a quick question. Um, What do you think the population of Kiribati is? Kiribati, the island.
1: 500,000. 500,000.
4: 250,000. So it's 120,000. Isn't that insane? Whoa. Tiny, tiny population. uh, And there are a lot of Kiribati people living uh, in Australia, New Zealand and and other places in America. Um, But because it is so small, everyone knows everyone. Like there is someone that will know someone. And in fact, the producer of this show, Elizabeth McCartney, her best friend, uh, her mother is from Kiribati. And when she told me this, uh, she gave me her full name. I said to my dad, I was like, do you know this person? And said the full name. He's like, oh yeah, that's such and such's daughter. Got a couple of siblings. Everyone just knows someone if, if you're from Kiribati. Um, my my younger brother was living in Kiribati for uh, uh, for a couple of years and he started to, before he started seeing a girl, he a woman, sorry, um, he called my mum back here in Australia, and had to say what her name was and um, who her parents were, what village she was from, so that my mum could confirm that she wasn't related to us, because <laughs> oh. <laughs> everyone is just somehow related in some way. Um, but she didn't, yeah, she wasn't related, thankfully, because they're married now with a couple of kids uh, living over here. Living over here, um, but yeah, the uh, the Kiribati community, everyone kind of knows someone that Maybe knows someone. How sweet it would be someone... to
1: get it back, saying you're all clear on the incest. Go for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a dream! I like the Iceland app, you know how they've that oh, app. Oh right, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but the dating app, so that you can make sure oh, yeah. you're not related to anyone else. Ah, oh. so you, yeah, if you're in Iceland and out dating, you can you put your names into this app and it shows. Whether you're related or not. Yeah. Well, if it's good enough for Charles Darwin, it's good enough for me. (laughs) We married his first
1: cousin. Did he? Yeah. First cousin's legal, isn't it? I, I think so. Well, it was then. Yeah. Maybe second. Yeah.
4: Yeah, right. I I, I've known people that have married their second cousins. Uh, okay, anyway, so this, this is going in a different s- direction. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm just sorry. sorry. <laughs> but I'm from, also from Bacchus Marsh um, and you said that you knew someone from Bacchus Marsh mm. as well. Um, and I, yeah, I knew him, um, I think my best friend. Billy. Billy, that's it. Yeah, he was best friends with my best friend's sister. So uh, and I think it was just a couple of years maybe two two or three years under me but yes yeah, just one of those things one of those fishbowl things when you know someone from that town um, celebrities though uh, my nan so this is my dad's mum.
1: Are we sure we're done talking about incest? Oh, because no, no, I no, can I absolutely. Going.
0: Oh, do you, you want to talk no, about that just... time you, you dated your second cousin? <laughs> let's take it. Let's walk it back in. Yeah, yeah. How many times have we talked about that in today's show? I know. what oh, right.
4: Was that night? Anyway. Anyway. Um, oh, Lord. Do you guys, uh, do you have any stories like that from where you're from or anything like that? Or?
1: Oh, uh, well, actually I was thinking about, uh, Kiribati at the Olympics,
0: oh,
4: yes. I'm like,
1: surely Bobby must not – because the, the team is not that strong mm. or that big. Three. There are three. Three, teams. really? Mm. And are you – when you learned of their identities, did you –
4: So, David, um, he's been a weightlifter and he has been in, he's competed in many Olympics and um, Commonwealth Games. So, every time he comes to Melbourne, and I'm sure any town that he goes to, the Kiribati community all come together and they all meet and have dinner and stuff at all you can eat in sunshine near the cinemas. They all go there all the time. That's amazing. Yeah. I remember once uh, when I, I think the Commonwealth team was a lot bigger um, when, and they were competing, they must have had. With the Commonwealth Games Industry in Melbourne. At
1: yes, some point? they were. Yeah.
4: Um and I was working John at
1: John So he's our bro? Oh, that's right. Mm. Yeah? That yeah. was the that was the catchphrase yeah. for uh-huh. the uh, when our Lord Mayor John So.
4: Oh right, right. Mm. Um yeah, so we had um <laughs> they came over and then there was a celebration with the Kiribati community that we had here. And I remember going into work and my boss uh, I was telling him, I was like, Oh yeah, so the Commonwealth the Kiribati Commonwealth Games team are here, so we're going out and having a celebration. He's like, Oh, you know them. I was like, Oh Kiribati. Everyone knows everyone. He's like, oh, would they, would they want to come here? It was like a sports club that had a bistro and everything. He's like, would they want to come here? Um, We'll put on lunch for them. We'll do a celebration. I was like, yeah, I'm sure they'd love that. And so they put on this big thing and um, uh-huh. in the, so it was them plus the volunteers and, and stuff. So there was probably about 30 of them. They came in a big bus uh, and they were welcomed and they were treated like heroes and it was so beautiful. They came in and ordered whatever drinks and food that they wanted uh, and people were getting photos with them. And it was just such a beautiful day. They just celebrated them. It was great. It was lovely. That's Gosh. so cool. I'm really
0: jealous of
1: this, yeah. that you have this
0: in your life.
1: Yeah, I don't have that. I mean, there's if someone's... If you learn someone's from Frankston.
0: Yeah, right. You get a pang. That's a bonding. But you don't know them. Right.
1: Necessarily. You
0: kind of, I feel like with Frankston, I've noticed it's like you bond over things in Franger. Yes. So maybe you don't know their family, but you'd be like, what about this joint? Yeah, you both went to the Pelly on this. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Uh, It must have been a proud moment for you when Eddie Current kind of came onto the scene, right? Because I feel like they kind of did Frankston proud. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, immensely. And did you feel like you wanted to I mean cuz you've you've told me kind of All right, settle down. Okay. No, <laughs> You've told me how you're related to them in, in various ways. No, there's, there's,
1: no, you're right. There is yeah. uh, a six degrees of separation in terms of a shoe, a shoe shop in Mornington.
0: Yes. Mm. And right. a member of any current expression <laughs> yeah. And Daniel told me very proudly. But honestly, I was really impressed. Yeah. I was super impressed. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm distantly related to Bindi Irwin.
0: Oh, how? my God, how?
1: I, like a third cousin or something. She would have no Blood. idea.
0: You know I'm distantly related to Conan O'Brien. Is that All a right. fact? How, yeah. How? Tell me. But you're going to laugh at me when I tell you. So yeah. my it's my dad's cousin's wife's cousin. Okay. He, he's my dad's cousin's, dad's cousin's wife's wife. cousin. Well, that's not nothing. <gasps> yeah, but I've always wanted to be able to get in the right. audience to tell him that. Do you think it would freak <laughs> him out? Well, he was in Australia. <laughs> I know. I feel like that was my chance. That was chance. You, to Did be like, do you know you're my dad's wife's cousin? But then... <laughs> And he's yeah. so mad on the Irish thing, right? So that's I thought that's he's gonna he'd be into it. Mm. Mm. And shall we go back to Bindi Irwin? Anyway, I've got oh, no, no well, more. That's The a, Conan thing's kind of the Bindi. I'm not gonna go. Hello, Bindi. Are you <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I'm like, well, maybe never... not like that. <laughs> that's a,
1: no, but that's why she's gonna hear that's it. A little bit. No matter that's what, a what I bit first say, cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whatever I say, she's gonna hear. hear get this. You know, creep the away from, away me. from <laughs> me. Get my exactly. fifth
0: cousin away from me. Are you, blood, are you blood related? I believe so. Which means you're blood related more importantly to Steve Irwin. Well, that is more important. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Don't you think? Like, you're. Yeah. I, I don't know that i the original Irwin. The original
1: Irwin. Well, no, well, Bob was the original. He st- Bob started the zoo. I don't. It's all fallen out between it's them. It's fallen out. I know. And I'm team Bob. Maybe
0: you could bring them back together. You could say, like, oh, I'm a distant
1: third cousin. <laughs> the Irwins need a mediator. Yeah, and they need you. Someone with a vested interest but who's also impartial. Yeah. Despite the fact that I just said I'm team Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and their six
0: cousins. <laughs> R.
1: Haunting Elizabeth McCarthy is here with a look at books. <laughs> Good morning, Elizabeth.
7: Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Um, today I thought I'd talk about this um, kind of hyped uh, short story collection that is hit bookshelves roundabout right now. Um, it's by a Chinese-American Australian author called Paige Clark and the collection is called She is Haunted. It is her debut collection of stories And I think the hype is uh, pretty well justified. So I felt like reviewing a collection of short stories because some lockdowns I've really immersed myself in long books, long novels and other lockdowns such as the one we're having now. My attention span appears to have shrunk. And one of the attractive things about the short story form is that it doesn't demand from you long stretches of attention. But if the story is really good, if the short story is really good, then you can, you know, you'll ruminate over it in the same way that you would a novel with a really good short story. So, yeah, this collection is pretty stunning. There's lots about friendships and relationships between women, um, whether that be um, a girlfriend obsessing over an ex-girlfriend, a mother and a daughter at loggerheads. Two women friends not hitting it off anymore. Um, The central characters of each of these 18 stories are women and they're all fabulously flawed and a bit messed up and a bit in denial of their own power and agency. And um, one of the big themes playing out across these stories is – Uh, the many shades and hues of intimacies and how two people can be ostensibly intimate, um, whether that be, you know, in a relationship or a friendship or family dynamic, and yet there are these sort of vast yawning chasms of misreadings, misinterpretations and misunderstandings. So, yeah, I found this collection absolutely riveting.
1: Is it uh, pretty surreal or is it grounded?
7: Well, that's a really... um, Yeah, well, so one of the reasons these stories are great is because they go to very unpredictable places and sometimes surreal places. So, um, for example, um, there's a woman who has brain surgery so she can cope with climate change. (laughs) Um, There's a mother and a daughter who fall out over haircuts. There's a ballerina who is becomes obsessed with her husband's new dancing partner so so there's the surreal in some short stories mm. and then there's the very real in um in most of the stories actually yeah. so so there's you know they're sort of shocking and a bit funny and quirky but I sort of sometimes hesitate using the word quirky because that sometimes suggests that um that I'm talking about literature that doesn't have much meat on its bones but this this collection really does. It's, it's you know, it's from the brain of someone who thinks deeply about human connection and disconnection.
1: Uh, do, you, do you reckon some of them could have been f- fleshed out or that they, they are what they are? And, you know, there are some songs that you want to go for longer.
7: Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, I just love... Um, I love short stories when they're written with incredible craft and and I do sometimes. When I, for example, read the short stories of people like Laurie Moore or Alice Munro or Mary Gateskill, I often think to myself, wow, you could have made this into one hell of a novel and congratulations Mm. on the fact that you only wanted to make it a short story, Um, you know, because I think that... I mean, novels, you don't, short stories don't sell the way that novels do at all, Um, short story collections. So, you know, the fact that a lot of really clever short story writers are quite happy just to um, settle into that form, um, I sort of tip my hat at them Mm. because it's a, you know, it's a form that has its own particular sort of demands and limitations and constrictions.
0: Out of this is kind of unrelated specifically to this short story group, but is there a, an ultimate short story? So you know how in novels people might be like, Dostoyevsky, I can't even say his name, mm. Dostoevsky. Mm. <laughs> I should, I'm, I'm, my partner's a Russian, I should be able to say that very well, so is my daughter now. Um, Shame on you. <laughs> yeah, but is there like an, like, is there a blueprint for short stories that people kind of hold up as the, the great short story?
7: That's a very interesting question. I don't know. I think that, um, like for example, in the last few years, I think the finest collection of short stories to come out of um, Australia was Josephine Rose' short story collection. Here until August, every single short story was so tight, so um, beautifully written, and took you places you didn't expect, and she is kind of an extraordinary writer. Um, And then then there's someone like Gerald Monane who, to me, um, some of his short stories aren't as strong as others, but, again, I mean, he's got such a sort of brilliant, singular, unique mind. But, yeah, I don't know. people. It's kind of like short films in some respect where (laughs) – People don't necessarily sit around and talk about short films with the same reverence as they do full-length features. And I feel that sometimes um, short stories get that kind of um, uh, resistance as well.
1: Well, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty by James Mm -hmm. Thurber is like, I don't know, is it 800 or 1,000 words? And 100 years later or whatever, we're still making movies about it and it's a catchphrase for, you know, a a fantasist.
7: Yeah, exactly. Um, I I actually think that short stories are probably more highly regarded than short films, really. I don't think anyone really – except for – I mean, short stories are sort of – short films, rather, are often seen as sort of like the apprenticeship you do to make – to make a full-length feature film. Mm. But short stories, I think, um, certainly in a lot of writing courses, they're viewed as like the thing you do before you do the big novel. Yeah. But, I mean, in America there's such a, a such a rich tradition of um, the short story and reverence for the short story, I think. Mm. But, again, it, it doesn't quite sell the way the novel does. And the novelists are sort of, you know, put on pedestals like they're geniuses. I don't think people talk enough about short story writers being geniuses when a lot of them are. People like um, Alice Munro in particular um, is just a, a sort of flawless short story writer.
1: What do we know about the
7: author? Uh, well, she's Chinese, American, Australian. She teaches at the University of Melbourne. Um, she's working on a PhD in creative writing. And she's actually written a few pieces um, online in the last month, which is something that publishers often get their new authors to do, is to sort of, you know, write pieces about their lives for, um, you know, The Guardian and what have you and stuff. So, so yeah, I've, I've never heard of her before and I'm just kind of um, really – super blown away by how strong this debut collection is. Yeah.
1: And was this – were any of these published previously or are we bang out of the gate in book form?
7: I'm not sure, actually. I haven't researched that. Um, but I suspect they – at least a couple of them yeah. would have been because they're so strong. I can't imagine that she would have only just Sit kept on them. them for this <laughs> collection. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. It's She's Haunted by Paige Clark. And the publisher? Ellen and Unwin. Excellent, Elizabeth McCarthy. will chat imminently. Yes, <laughs> see
0: you soon. Triple <laughs> right. R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for
1: being here; it
3: means a lot.
1: It's our great pleasure to welcome as our Wednesday Wisecracker, comedian, writer, and the lockdown co-host of Junk Time AFL podcast, Michael Chamberlain. Morning, Chambo.
5: Hey, folks. I haven't seen you guys since the um the the COVID protests on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Just to hang out. I mean, Dan, you shouldn't
1: have punched the horse. But... <laughs> oh, no. You really don't tired. call. You don't write. I've been tied up.
5: That's all <laughs> 5G. They got to stop it. They got to look into that. <laughs> um,
1: are you slowly losing it?
5: Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I uh, I think what's it been about three weeks since Sydney now. Of like, I mean, initially it was like a very crappy lockdown, and like people were like literally begging Gladys to actually do something. Um, and then eventually we have something now, but I'm, I'm north of the bridge. I'm doing very well. (laughs) (laughs) And so actually surprisingly, kind of hasn't really kind of crossed the bridge to the northern areas, but, um, it's funny, man, I've, Gladys has been doing the press conferences like next, pretty much next door to my place. Uh, and she, when she announced the lockdown maybe like a month ago, whenever it was, um, Uh, I was like, oh, that's right next door to me. And so I was like, I'm going to go and see what that press conference looks like, right? And I was wearing my tracky-dacks and the T-shirt that I sleep in and a baseball cap. But I took my podcast recording gear with me. I don't know why. And I wasn't going to do anything. But I took my podcast recording gear and just kind of stood at the back of the press back and just kind of dangled my microphone out. And then after about five minutes, a bloke approached me. And he flashed his police badge at me. <laughs> he said, "Are you meant to be here, mate?" I was like, "No, I, I am not." <laughs> it was so funny getting flashed a badge. I got flashed a badge, and I wasn't going to do anything. I wasn't. But I think he thought maybe I was going to be a prankster. Yeah,
1: yeah.
5: Could you have dressed up just a little bit? I mean, come on. Well, well I mean, well, I mean, we're currently skyping, and I'm wearing a costume smoking jacket. And smoking pants and a hawthorn jumper and a hawthorn scarf. So, I mean, what's your definition of dressed up?
0: And I'm, I'm a sorry, hat. a top hat. Can we just
5: yes. – how did you leave the top hat out of that? And a prop cigar? And a prop cigar and I've got my childhood teddy bear. So, <laughs> oh. all, I didn't make an effort, okay? <laughs> what's, what's Teddy's name? Potbelly. Oh. I think I had pop belly since I was about four. <laughs> and he's got a bit of a wound. His arms got stitched up from oh. when. Yeah, but anyway, um, I'm 43 years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else is going on up there, dude? I um, can I tell you a story? Okay, it's it's you know it's Wednesday funny time. <laughs> i tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Yeah, Adam. yeah. This time, right? You own your place, don't you, Dan? Hey, we don't go broadcasting. <laughs> this is community radio, Michael. Someone's doing very
1: well.
5: <laughs> no, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story about the time I, um? okay, okay. Here's the thing I want to leave for the listeners, right? Okay. Can I say, never be afraid to go full psycho, Okay. <laughs> Right, so that, never be afraid to go full psycho. And I mean that by if, if you feel like you're being screwed over, if you feel like you're being taken advantage of, yeah. never be frightened to, t- to fight back, okay? that's I want to give that to the people of Melbourne on this, on this sunny day uh, at, when, when, I, when you go to the next protest. Uh, <laughs> I never go full psycho, right? This is like the worst thing I ever do, the passive aggressive thing I do. Often I'll begin an email with, hi, I hope you're well, when in reality... I don't give an F if you're left. I just want you to do the thing I want you to do, and I want you to do it quick, okay? <laughs> but I went full psycho uh, about 2009, I think. So I, I, I read apartment at the time, and I had an inspection, right? Um, the only problem being, because um, I was moving out of the apartment, the only problem being I didn't know I had an inspection. So at 9.30 in the morning... I got woken up with a man in a suit with a clipboard at the end of my bed, tapping my feet, going, Michael, Michael, we've got people coming through. We've got people coming through. you got to get up. And I realised it was my real estate agent, okay? Now, I think about things, okay, and I think about why don't people like real estate agents, okay? Because yeah. I think if someone told you tomorrow that COVID came about, because a real estate agent beat another real estate agent. You go, that makes sense. Right? Like even real estate agents, like even even serial killers about to put a body in a barrel, look at real estate agents and go, nah, you don't treat people like that. Right? They're simply the worst people in the entire world, right? So I roll into the living room with name redacted, okay? I won't give you his name, name redacted. And we start yelling at each other. He's like, I'm like, what are you doing here? And by the way, I'm wearing Bugs Bunny boxer shorts and an I Heart Niagara Falls t-shirt. <laughs> I'm like yelling at him. what are you doing here? He's like, we have an inspection. Oh, you didn't tell me. Oh, I told you. You didn't tell me. He goes, oh, I, I sent you a letter. I didn't get a letter. He said, I sent you an email. I didn't get an email. He says, I called your phone, right? And I could prove this immediately, right? So I go back and get my phone from bar my, beside my bed. And I, I see a missed call at 9.15 a.m., right? And I look at the number. I go, is that your number? And he goes, yes, that's my number. I go, wait, so your idea of telling me about an inspection is to call me 15 minutes before an inspection. And this is the line that did it. He said, you have a responsibility to answer your phone at all times.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so
5: he's a worse bloke than Daniel Burt. I like am worse bloke. <laughs> So I yell at him to get out of there, right? And he gets the look on his face that goes, oh, yeah, you are crazy. And <laughs> okay, okay, let me read this. Okay, I'll, be, I'll wrap it up very quickly. Okay, uh-huh. let me read this, okay? This is an email I got from Name Redacted. Okay? <laughs> on the, okay?
1: Yeah.
5: On the Monday, I got this email from Name Redacted. It said, Michael, I hope you're over your tantrum. <laughs> Which is a strong opening, okay? (laughs) I'm writing to reschedule the inspection you cancelled on Saturday. Let me know a time that suits. Hopefully you won't be asleep this time. Oh, (laughs) my God! From this bloke, named redacted, he was clearly ready for a round two, okay? (laughs) And he works for a big company, okay? They employ over 3,000 people in this country, and so... On Monday, June 15, 2009, I replied to Name Redacted. Hi, I hope you're well. (laughs) Just so that I'm absolutely clear, can I confirm that you're talking about last Saturday when you broke into my home, (laughs) scolded me awake, and then yelled at me in my living room. You were wearing a suit, I was wearing Bugs Bunny boxer shorts, and an I Heart Niagara Falls singlet. (laughs) I'm a stickler for the facts and thought it might be best to get some other people to clarify these statements. So I took the liberty of forwarding this email chain to the head of your branch, the executive manager of New South Wales, the executive director of Australia, the chairman of the board, the other six members of the board, plus the CEO of your company. Please get a good night's sleep. Something tells me you're going to be very busy in the morning. Within 10 minutes, I had a phone call from the chairman of the board asking me what happened. I told him. He said he talked to name redacted. I found it very funny because he also said, he's like, how did you get my email? Because I went full psycho. <laughs> I went full psycho. Going full psycho works. It worked on Martin from Century Real Estate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: do psycho people. Oh, uh, what a great <laughs> advice. Well, uh, Michael Chanlon, full psycho, give our best to Gladys when you next see her. So, Triple R. I'm hungry. I
5: want
3: something to eat.
6: Something with a crunch and very sweet.
1: Right. Sybaritic, scribbler Michael Harden joins us for a scheduled food interlude. Morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, we're well. Uh, and uh, now you can get back amongst it.
3: Exactly, exactly. I'm sort of already champing at the bit. I've got mm. a couple of reservations ready to go. So um, I'll be sitting there in virtually an empty restaurant on my own. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Beautiful.
3: Uh, but uh, what are we talking about today? Well, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole because this thing came across my desk where it was like it was about um, tablescaping which is probably used to be known as setting the table. <laughs> um, but it was came across with, yes, it was sort of tablescaping according to your star sign. And oh, I thought God. that is sort of something that, you know, I'd never really thought about before. <laughs> and um and it was and then I kind of went down a little bit and I thought oh I'll, I'll look a little bit about tablescaping and it's like it's actually sort of like it's another thing to add stress to your life because it's like I was it's tablescaping it's not just dining room tables but you can also tablescape your bedside table you can tablescape your hall table and everything and um you know they, they have judgments like things like you know empty tables are soulless so it's kind of like you know those you feel like you need to uh, really add something to your life but I was looking at the the whole table setting the table thing and it's actually it's it's a really interesting phenomenon. It's sort of like and there is actually um, competitive tablescaping. Oh wow it's been around for since about the nineteen thirties, but it's sort of really picked up recently. And it's this, there's a new documentary coming out this year called Set. That's all about the competitive word, world of tablescaping. And you've got all these people doing the, you know, there's some very strict rules about how big the table can be and what glass where you can use. And they're all out there with tape measures to make sure that your cutlery is exactly the right shape and size and in, in, in alignment with each other and that sort of stuff. So it's, um, it's actually, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a precision sport. Really, so um, I thought it was you know one of those things that uh, you could you probably you know be seeing that at the Olympics. Yeah. Um, sometime in the next. Not, of not years. if you're a Capricorn, though. They're crap at it. Now, no, though. no, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, as a Libra, I've, I've <laughs> that I need um, full blown floral plates, napkins, and fresh bouquets, <laughs> um, and uh, sorbet colours, and I need to keep the vibe playful, feminine, and fun. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> So I'm just I'm, I'm chucking out everything that I own to uh, dress my table, and it's all going. I'm going down the Liberan path.
1: So <laughs>
3: <laughs> but um, but it's sort of it's interesting the whole idea about setting the tables because the you know the history of it is you know um, it wasn't until sort of about the 1700s that it was sort of like things that the table setting sort of started to become a bit of a thing. And sort of before that, it was like the only thing like even in a royal banquet or whatever. This is in Europe. Um in a, in a royal banquet or whatever, it would be there would be nothing on the table except a container um, with salt in it, and you would be expected to bring your own cutlery and you know things would just be sort of laid down on the table and if there was a tablecloth, it was basically there as a giant communal napkin oh. so yeah, exactly so um, you know so you'd be everybody would be wiping their hands on the greasy old cloth. Um, But then it's sort of like there was a there was a thing, you know, obviously there was a there was a way then there was a way of setting the table and it used to be called service a la Francaise. Of course, the the French have claimed it, even though it's a way that um, Asian cuisines have been um, eating for centuries, which is putting all everything on the table goes on the table at once. So it's all shared tables and everything like that. But then there became a fashion um, probably around the 1800s where it was called uh, service a la Russe. So in the Russian style and that was where you were served a single plate of food at a time. So it was sort of like that kind of entree main dessert thing. It's the first time that came in and that became very sort of fashionable and the the sign of aristocracy. So all of a sudden you were confronted with a table that normally was filled with dishes of food, but it was empty, you know, other than than the little single plates of food. And so all of a sudden the stuff that went on the table became displays of power and um, of wealth and you know you would sort of like you know it became more and more innate um, as uh, particularly as manufacturing started to come in so things were there was more glassware there was more cutlery there was more dishes and everything and so all of a sudden it became this incredibly complex thing where you would have you know 18 sets of you know knives and forks lined up ready to go Um, so that's kind of where that kind of thing happened and then it became sort of a more Middle class thing as the, as the things started to become cheaper.
1: Hmm. With the tablescaping, the competitive one, do you did you get involved? Did, is it exciting? Do they get tape measures out? It's what are the re- metrics? It's
3: actually really interesting because it's the whole thing with the um, best in show sort of stuff. So they the the setup is that they have like you you apply to get your table in there. And then they have, like, a series of themes and then they have an open competition. So they might have Parisian nights or um, Gone with the Wind or something like that. And you have to, like, everything has to sort of go within that theme. Um, One of the the major rules of it, there's no real food allowed anywhere near the table. (laughs) How disappointing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, you do have to present a menu of what you would serve at the table that has to be in the Gone with the Wind theme. So uh, you know it's actually and like you know and they will judge you on the, the sort of glass that you've, you're using. If, you, if your water glass and your wine glass are in the wrong position, you have to. You know, there, there's a lot of a lot of windexing going on with glassware because if a, a single fingerprint can mark you down. It's very right. tense. You know, sort of like there's you- one woman? I was. I saw the. Um, a trailer for the documentary that's coming out in a little while, and uh, one woman she yet yeah, she she was in tears because she'd you know she'd put her water glass and her, her wine glass in the wrong spot and had been marked down 15 points. High <laughs> well, intensity stuff, I know exactly. It's brutal,
1: the brutal world. It's just of a brain snap, I guess, day. in the table skipping. <laughs> yeah, if yeah.
0: we were to come for dinner at um Michael Harden's house, what would, yeah. your, what would your table look like when you said it? Yes, Is it something I, that you think about? And yeah,
3: yeah exactly, it, but because it was like you know. I'm looking at this tablescape and I was kind of mocking it and everything and there is a lot to mock because it's you know it's so over the top in some of the you know the the, the idea of competitive tablescaping but I also actually really like the idea of dressing a table if you've got people coming out for dinner because it does make it into an occasion, you know, and it's kind of like I own I, I own one tablecloth that I picked up at Ikea, but I sort of, but I bring it out. And, you know, I, the last time that I had it out when I was allowed to have people around for dinner, I um I actually, I was like, I looked at it and I went, hmm, that needs an iron. Right. And I was just sort of like, and did that. And it's kind of, you know, I, I think it's... Um, it's, it's nice, to, and you sort of look at like the history of like all all celebrations. Like you look at Christmas, you look at Eid, you look at Chinese New Year, you look at Hanukkah. There's all ways of dressing tables for that, and it kind of it does bring a sense of occasion to it. I kind of like that side of it. Um, and I think at the moment, like, you know, the trend in case you, there are like, there, there are quite a lot of, um, tablescaping influences as well. There's a lot of like, you know, so, um, you might want to follow some of those and the trend at the moment, just so that you don't, you know, don't get embarrassed when you invite your friends over is sort of, it's a very natural sort of, I live on a farm kind of kind of aesthetic where it's sort of like you know you look like you've just kind of you know hacked open one of your potato sacks and laid it on the table as a tablecloth you know so if you've got a bit rough you know you don't want to iron your linen napkins you've got a bit of sort of you know earthy tableware and it's sort of like there was there was one table they were like yeah they were looking at it at, at, in the article that I was reading and they were talking about you know this really earthy just scatter some flowers wildflowers that you've picked up on one of your walks you know that sort of stuff and um, yeah the whole table setting cost about are uh, fifteen hundred dollars oh. uh, because of the, the earthenware? Like get just get sort of really beautiful earthenware plates and everything, and they're like four hundred and fifteen per plate. Oh. So you know it's like it's uh, it does it costs a lot to uh, to look like you don't care.
1: What about your line of sight if something's tall and in the middle?
3: Well, this is the thing I find with a lot of – I look at these – I was looking at a lot of these Instagram um, influence, tablescaping influences, and they've, a lot of them have got, like, lots and lots of, like, flowers and sprigs of stuff in the middle of the table. And I was like, if somebody just asked to pass the salt, it'd be, it'd be like some kind of Mission Impossible sort of manoeuvre to get through the vases in order to just pass the salt, you know. So, yeah, I, I kind of like – You know, back back to my my dinner party. It's like I like candles. You know, it's like I I think candles on the the table are really good, and it's sort of like, and I think you can have those at different heights because they don't take up a huge amount of room. But I'm just yeah, I'm not really into the sort of scattered. You know, because (laughs) there's you can do shells and you can do fruit and. Things scattered across the middle of the table and everything. It's like I kind of think just sort of keep it simple, classic with a good decent tablecloth. You know, maybe kind of make sure your cutlery's clean, and um, you know, get, get chuck a couple of candles on there.
1: What about that plant behind you that
3: we've seen <laughs> throughout the whole lodge? Yeah. That, that is my that's my centerpiece, <laughs> and it, it's like, I like it. I like the way that it looks like it's almost dead.
0: Just, so,
3: just like um, this is
0: no, there is this plant that. It sits next to Michael's head in the yeah. in the Skype call, and yeah. it's been there since day one of lockdown ten thousand years ago, and it's yeah. gone through various life cycles. Sometimes yeah. dead, sometimes half dead,
3: sometimes alive. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's doing pretty well. It's doing quite well, I know exactly. And I was sort of like, I was, you know, you you had plant shamed me <laughs> plant several times, but then I thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm just leaving it there. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, tablescaping, and have you? Change your tune on a clean table, or an empty table is a soulless. Do you do you think there's something to this?
3: Oh, look, you know, it's kind of like whatever turns you on, but that's like again, I, I kind of like you know, but the idea of like actually thinking about dressing a coffee table seems like something that kind of you know, we you might need to leave that for another moment and think about you know, think about your life. A
1: bit. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what are <do> your plan? <laughs> oh, Michael, Get it
3: here. Was <laughs> pleasure.
1: Thanks very much.
3: Ah, that's right, triple
4: R. So I am one of three in my family. I've got two brothers. You both have siblings, don't you? Yes. You're one of five. I guess one of five. One of five. How about you? One of four. One of four. Really? Mm. I'm one of three. I thought that was a lot, but not compared to you two. Um, I'm I'm in the middle. So we've got I've got older brother, obviously, and a younger brother. Where are you, Smithy? Are you in the middle? Second older? last. Okay.
0: Mm. And what does he say? Is that to say something about my mental state that I call myself second last in the family? I don't know how else to say it. I was, yeah, yeah, I was trying to think of second way youngest, to say it. maybe second youngest, second youngest, yeah. second last. Second, sec- <laughs> Jesus, you it's a competition. Second but there's a big divi- so there's like the oldest kids, then there's a gap, and then there's yep. the three youngest. So some might call me a middle child.
4: Oh, so you've got two groups.
0: Yeah, two groups. Ah, there you go, the two elders
4: and stuff. I've got – there's a three-year gap. So my oldest brother, Russ, then me, uh, and and then my younger brother. So it's three years between each of us. So in high school, we literally – we had a split campus. So it was year seven to nine, and then the other campus was year nine to 12 uh, – sorry, 10 to 12. Um, So as soon as my brother left the junior campus, I came in, and he went to the next one. And then when I went to the senior campus, he left, and my younger brother came in. So we missed each other throughout the whole thing which is probably a good thing. Um, but <laughs> I, I was going to chat about um sibling hierarchy. Uh, so we haven't got any eldest.
3: No. Okay. So we
4: see we can be completely honest here. Um but eldest uh, I would say uh, they get treated Well, the eldest in the – I'm a middle child, so I'm going to say that. But the eldest in my, um, I guess, childhood always got the perks, like would always get the front seat, would always get to stay up later, um, could always go to parties, was allowed to do everything because they were the eldest – and then the youngest um, could get away with anything. It's like and my parents had given up. It was like, all right, we've got to, you're the third, just do whatever. Like didn't have a bedtime. There were just no rules. <laughs> I felt like I really got jibbed as the middle <laughs> child, right? Typical middle middle child. Um, I, I send a message to um, to my family. We've got a family Facebook messenger thing, which which is great sometimes, and then it can get inundated and you just have to ignore the messages for a little while. Um but I sent a message saying to them that I was going to be talking about sibling hierarchy uh, and these are what I think the traits are. What do you think are some of your traits, uh, you know, in, in the hierarchy? And my dad came back because I said middle child gets neglected. He said, oh, you weren't neglected. If anything, you demanded our attention. I
0: said because I was neglected. <laughs> yeah. The definition of neglected. <laughs> If
4: anything. But my older brother used to do this thing.
1: If anything, I heard you scratching from inside the cupboard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't get any rest. If anything, I don't have any memories of you as a child. (laughs) Who are you? Um,
4: My older brother used to do this thing uh, for his own entertainment where he would be bored, so he would tell my younger brother, he'd be like... Uh, um, You know, Bobby was saying that she could beat you up in a fight. She was saying you were weak. You were so weak. <laughs> oh,
1: God, it's not even awesome. subtle. I love it.
4: And I'm just like, on, oh, no, not again. No, I didn't say that. And people would be like, you said what? What did you say about me? I'm like,
0: I
7: didn't say a thing.
4: Russ is just starting stuff because he's bored. Do not. And then Russ will go, yeah, see, she look at her. She's mocking you now. She's mocking you. I wouldn't take that if I were you. And literally, it would just all be on. And then we would just be in this big brawl, <gasps> mum and dad would come in, Russ would just be sitting there eating popcorn. And <laughs> <laughs> Literally eating popcorn. Yeah, and then, and then I'd get in trouble for beating up my younger brother. <laughs> oh, wow. But, I mean, it, it, I, it didn't last too long. He certainly got a little bit older and bigger than me, and that's when I said to Russ, I'm like, you have to stop doing
1: this. <laughs> how, how violent did it get?
4: Oh, um, I mean, you don't punch in the face, but we certainly. Uh, I, I grew up having wrestles with my brothers. Yeah. Um, my older brother, if he, because he was bigger and stronger, my defense was if he came at me, I would like go on the couch and then I'd just kick my feet. So, and oh, he's geez. just like he can't do that because he'd go to like grab me, but I'd kick his face. <laughs> it's like what? That's what you
0: get. Kick like... his
4: face. <laughs> you look so excited when you said that, and I just kick his face. Um, but, <laughs> So I don't know. I, I think when I was talking to other people, not everyone has had uh, a physical brawls <laughs> with their siblings. How about you guys? Did you have any?
1: You would look like a turtle on its
4: back. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. They yes. kick in the face. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It was my deep. I would just up on the floor in a corner, wherever it was, and kick until. I mean, my it older sister.
1: My eldest sister is eleven years older than me, so we oh, right. never. I think she moved out of home by the time I was sent in. More or less. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, the middle
0: child thing, it's real, isn't it?
1: Absolutely it is. Yeah,
0: it is. And so is the youngest. So you're youngest. Mm. Yeah, so I've got to be careful what I say. Youngest just, (laughs) he just got everything, got what he wanted, got away with everything, got gifts, Mm. got, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that was your existence though, so maybe not. Oh, no, I mean... Yes, this is from
1: what I've been told. Is that I had the, I could do whatever I wanted.
0: But also, you have no mm. evidence the contrary because you're the youngest, so you can't kind of debate. You don't know what their experience was like as they grew up as well.
1: The, there was you, you've a,
0: got a sibling texting you right I've now, got don't a sibling, you? Yeah. Have
1: you? I, someone said I pushed my. One of my sisters said I pushed you into a wall. <laughs> Oh, that's right. She pushed me into a wall, and then a photo of my elder sister fell behind and smashed. Oh. yeah. But I'm, you know, there's in terms of discipline. I remember running around like Benny Hill, trying to chase, uh, trying to flee, getting smacked.
0: Oh man, oh, yeah. yeah. That is mostly my, my childhood memories: eternally mm. being chased and having things fly over my head as well. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not parenting now, but I, <laughs> I know that's how it happened. I just remember having things flying at me constantly. Uh, intending to miss you? Who knows? I should probably probably say yes, shouldn't I? (laughs) Probably not. Yeah. uh, No, that was – I don't know. We're we're such a confusing – similar, my eldest brother uh, probably left before I was even able to comprehend that he existed uh, in that we have a huge gap as well. He's probably 11 years older than me. And so I've always felt like a middle child and the sister above me has always acted like the eldest child in the family, even though she's technically – the middle, yeah. But I blame her for the fact that I can't cook, or I'm very <laughs> coordinated because I was so we were so close in age that she just did everything for me from a very young age. Right. And so when we were say at the farm and having a barbecue, Mum would get her to do all the you know give her the tongs and go you go and cook the meat, but then oh Sarah, it's not really in your nature. <laughs> you just oh. you just watch. Or you just, you know, or you just, can you just help mum stir the salad? So I was often just, like, stirring lettuce leaves in a bowl, (laughs) knowing that it wasn't really a job and that my other sister was doing the real job. Mm. And I don't know, it's probably unfair of me to blame it on her. She was just good at what she did. But
4: yeah, Did you want to do some of those jobs?
0: I wanted to, but to be fair, mum was right. I just burned myself. Like, I was very accident prone. It was, she did the right thing, but I... I think now I'm an adult, it's easier for me to blame uh, my sister for taking all the jobs away from me so that I could never learn how to function as an adult. Yeah. But if you want your t- salad toss,
1: Smitty's, uh, you go. I will <laughs> just – you just wait. <laughs>
4: yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, when my dad babysits my nieces and nephews, he, he says the, the eldest child, like there's four of them, uh, she's 10 and literally she will look like – he just has to be there so that there's an al- adult supervising, but she will – entertain the kids, look after the kids. If the youngest needs anything, she'll go and do it. So I think that's something uh, when I was reading up just traits of the the children and saying like with firstborns, they're uh, reliable, high achievers, structured, and they tend to look after their younger siblings. Um, And she does that to a T. Uh, Middle child, which is me, some of the traits were people pleaser. (laughs) Rise on friendships, yep, and peacemaker. I, I took out all the bad ones. I've just put the uh, good ones in there. <laughs> but wait, the, the youngest, it says, fun loving, manipulative, and attention seeker.
0: Oh my God, we're all of these things. This is true, yeah. But you're yeah. not these things, Daniel. For oh, a youngest, to say. you're not. Uh, at some point, you've got to give it up, don't you? It's yeah, move on from the family structure. I think so. Yeah, you yeah. can't be a youngest child forever. For God's sake. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, mm. Stop banging on about but it. Then,
1: Bobby. No, 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 that's not what I mean.
0: But if, <laughs> no, it's, no, it, but like you can't. You can't keep playing. You can't be like, oh, I'm a, pe-, you know, yeah. I'm this, and you, yeah, yeah.
1: It's. I think it's real. I think it's yeah. the real. All the psychological things. I think it's, it's very real.
0: real. Uh, but you, you shouldn't be, wear it your whole life. Yeah, yeah. Like I find that the eldest has a chip on their shoulder. I'm only saying this because I know he doesn't listen. <laughs> I don't know if what you guys sort find chip? it. Just, you harder, targets? harder, oh, harder. Yeah. harder. Oh, I had it harder, oh, you know, because yeah. the eldest child's the experiment child yeah. and every eldest child I know is a bit kind of pissed off because they had to do – they had to pave the way. So maybe oh. they had the stricter rules. There was a bit more experimentation with their learning and with their yeah. growing up. And so I just find that there's a bit of a the old – Chip on the shoulder yeah. for the eldest. But doesn't the first child – At least for a little bit, is the only child. But how long for? Not memory. You don't have memory. Unless you unless you were the eldest till you were ten. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just resent every other child that comes after that. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so you're the only child but you don't get the benefit. You don't get the benefit of it, yeah. Yeah, Right. There you go. It's psychology (laughs) one (laughs)
1: oh (laughs) one. Triple R.